You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 4th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme, Israel recommences hostilities in the Gaza Strip, but are Israel's objectives achievable? Also ahead, Europe's far-right parties, or at least the ones which can stand each other, launch their EU election campaign. Later in the show, we'll be in Jakarta for an exhibition of recently restored artefacts and... Hello, Andrew. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and today we look at the dispute between Venezuela and Guyana, plus a record year for tourism in Brazil. Plus, the Oxford English Dictionary announces its word of the year. That's kind of where my riz is at, and I'm locked up, so I'm happy and in love, so I've got no need for riz. All will be explained. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. For all that, Israel did recently observe a few days of truce in its campaign against Hamas in Gaza. Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been clear from the off that he envisages a long war, as long indeed as it takes to remove Hamas as a meaningful threat to Israel, whatever the cost to the people of Gaza. And according to Hamas authorities in Gaza, at least another 700 people have been killed since hostilities resumed. Well, I'm joined now by Neri Zilba, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and adjunct fellow of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and an advisor to Israel Policy Forum. Um, Neri, first of all, as I was foreshadowing there, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has been clear from the off that uh, he intends to uproot Hamas entire uh, from Gaza, which given the events of October 7th is not an unreasonable aspiration. But do we yet have a clear idea of how we will know when that has been done. So good afternoon, Andrew. Uh, it's good to be with you. Well, according to Israeli military strategists, and as I reported uh, over the weekend for the Financial Times, there is a plan in place uh, by Israel to achieve those objectives. Uh, you hear the politicians talk about eliminating Hamas or dismantling Hamas, uh, but it has very practical meaning on the ground uh, in terms of the military. Uh, it would see the Israeli military uh, at least destroy or uh, neutralize uh, the majority of Hamas's 24 battalions inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, I would see Israel uh, killing or eliminating uh, the top leadership of the organization, primarily uh, Yahya Sinwar, Mohammed Dif, and Marwan Issa. Uh, it would also see Israel uh, toppling effectively the Hamas government, the Hamas regime in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and then finally, and uh, perhaps foremostly, uh, it would see Israel uh, safely returning at least uh, a lot of the hostages seized on October 7th. All of this obviously easier said than done, uh, but that would be what victory means, uh, at least for Israel. I mean, as you say, it is easier said than done, which is generally the case for any military enterprise. Do you detect any signs of disagreement or dissent among the IDF or among Israeli politicians about how practically achievable any of this is? Uh, I don't believe so. I haven't seen signs of dissent in my in my own reporting now over two months uh, of covering this war. Uh, the Israeli government and even the Israeli people, I should say, uh, are fully behind the war aims uh, against Hamas uh, in terms of Israel, at least. They don't see any, any alternative uh, but to try to uproot Hamas from the Gaza Strip uh, because 
uh, of what happened on October 7th, clearly. Um, there may be dissent in terms of how Israel prosecutes the war, how much Israel should take into account, say, Biden administration uh, leaning in on the fact that Israel, as it continues on with its military offensive in Gaza, needs to take further into account uh, civilian casualties on the Palestinian side uh, to facilitate more humanitarian aid going into the Gaza Strip. Uh, those are two key asks by the Biden administration of Israel that need, uh, I'd argue, more uh, a more receptive audience, perhaps at the very top of the Israeli government, from the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, as well as Israeli policy writ large vis-a-vis the Palestinian conflict and what uh, its policies have been now for many years in the West Bank, so not even in the Gaza Strip, but in the West Bank in terms of Israeli policy there. Uh, but that's a whole different conversation. So. Uh, no overall dissent in terms of the war and the war aims, uh, but perhaps the approach uh, could be attenuated, at least uh, from the Israeli side. Well, do you detect any signs that that is going to be done as operations proceed into the south of the Gaza Strip, which is widely anticipated to be what happens next? There have, of course, been these reports over the weekend that people gathered in the south of the Gaza Strip, uh, many of whom have fled there from the north of the Gaza Strip, are being told that they should uh, relocate. But as anybody who knows Gaza even slightly uh, is aware, there there is a very severe limit on places you can actually relocate to. So uh, your question is well taken, Andrew. Uh, I can just say from my own reporting that uh, Israeli uh, political leaders, officials, and also military strategists um, have taken into, into account in terms of the approach to southern Gaza needing to be very different than the approach to northern Gaza. Uh, northern Gaza was a scene, as we know, over the past month of a very heavy Israeli ground offensive. So at least uh, rhetorically, at least nominally, from what I've been told, uh, Israel has taken uh, American concerns on board in terms of the south uh, needing to be different than north, uh, and that you can't, Israel can't, uh, duplicate what it did in northern Gaza and southern Gaza. Um, the southern offensive hasn't really begun in earnest uh, over the past few days. Uh, increased airstrikes perhaps in South Gaza, uh, perhaps some tentative moves by Israeli ground forces southward. Uh, so it remains to be seen whether uh, the rhetoric and what uh, words, at least I was told, uh, by Israeli officials are translated into actions, especially in the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Just finally, and it's a, it's something I'm interested in in terms of Israeli domestic opinion. Obviously, international opinion has been, and again, not unreasonably focused on the death toll uh, of Palestinians in Gaza, which, according to Hamas's figures, has comfortably uh, cleared five figures at this point. But the IDF is confirming 75 Israeli soldiers dead in operations in Gaza since they began. Is there a a high tolerance for IDF casualties among the Israeli public? Do you think? Uh, there is. There is a very high tolerance in this war. Uh, and I'd argue, unlike previous recent wars by Israel, where uh, the death toll, especially among soldiers, was uh, a, a key consideration and a key, uh, I'd say, fear, both by Israeli policymakers and by the public, that uh, you, can't, uh, you can't have too many um, deaths on the Israeli side, uh, that's now all out the window. And the simple reason for that is October 7th, uh, the highest death toll inside Israel in its history, uh, some would say the highest death toll of Jews since the Holocaust has completely shifted Israeli public opinion. Uh, the Israeli public and even the government view this as a war of no choice. Uh, now, you can debate that, but that's just uh, the, the vast majority of opinion in Israel at the moment. Uh, and that given that it's a war of no choice uh, and that the war aims, as we laid out at the top, uh, need to be fulfilled uh, at any cost, at any cost, including 
uh, to the Israeli public and the Israeli soldiers who are now being sent uh, deep into the Gaza Strip to, to achieve those war aims. Neri Zilber in Tel Aviv, thank you for joining us. Uh, you are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Here is Christy O'Grady with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Eleven hikers were found dead and at least 12 more are missing in Indonesia after a volcano erupted. Mount Merapi on the island of Sumatra began spewing ash over nearby villages on Sunday. Authorities have introduced the second highest alert level and imposed an exclusion zone near the volcano's crater. The US military says one of its warships engaged and shot down three drones over the Red Sea after Houthi rebels from Yemen attacked commercial ships. A spokesman for the Iran-backed group said its navy had targeted Israeli ships, though Israel denied any connection to the vessels. And Australia's Gold Coast has withdrawn its bid to hold the 2026 Commonwealth Games, with its mayor citing a lack of federal and state government support. The Queensland city had entered a joint bid with Perth, but failed to get funding for its $700 million proposal. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you for that, Christy. Uh, you are listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller, and joining me now to review some of the day's papers is our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who is here in the studio. Uh, Fernando, we are looking uh, at Latin America, as we often do when you are here. Uh, where are we starting? We are starting with the Estado de São Paulo newspaper, but the story here is about Venezuela and Guyana, actually. And Andrew, is quite interesting because Guyana, you know, is a fairly small country. I think the population is about 800,000 the only English-speaking country in the region. I think a lot of people have questions about Guyana. They perhaps don't know much about the country, but now everyone's talking about it because there was a referendum uh, over the weekend in Venezuela where voters basically were saying if they want to, well, not if they want to, but if Venezuela should claim quite a large part of Guyana is a region called Esequibo, and it's basically two-thirds of the country. I mean, that's quite a large uh, amount. It's a historic dispute. It's not a new thing. It's over 100 years that Venezuela was kind of claiming that. But it's quite interesting that suddenly this topic arrived with a referendum. I well, mean, in- indeed so, Fernando. At the risk of sounding like some sort of flint-hearted mm. cynic, it would not be the first time in human history that a beleaguered dictator who has demonstrated himself completely unable to govern his rapidly bankrupting country decides to pick a fight with a neighbour. Do we suspect that that just about may be what President Nicolas Maduro is up to? I have to say I agree with you 100% on this one. And there's no, of course, there is not appetite in the region for this. Uh, so even President Lula was saying, because, and Brazil is a little bit involved in this, because we do share our borders mm. uh, with Guyana as well. And he said, I mean, it would be crazy for to have a war in the region at this moment, uh, where the world, I mean, we have, uh, you know, we have wars in, in Ukraine, uh, in Israel. So, I mean, it, it's just not necessary. And as you say, I think Venezuela is going through severe economic problems. And, I, and I'm sure most citizens in the country, they don't want uh, that as well. So, yes, although this dispute, there's a historic reason for it, you know, I, I Perhaps I'm not the the biggest expert on that. It's something that there's no appetite uh, for it in the region. So, but but there's tension. There's tension in the air. Even Brazil, they send more military uh, f- uh, military power uh, to their region as well. So hopefully nothing will happen. But we never know. Well, let's move on to a couple of stories from your hometown newspaper. Uh, we are starting with uh, your president Lula visiting uh, Germany's chancellor. 
Olaf Scholz, yes, he's and their friends. They're very uh, strong friends, I have to say, Andrew. So when Lula was inaugurated earlier this year, Olaf Scholz was the first foreign leader to visit Brazil, in fact. Uh, and both of their parties have been kind of friendly since the 80s. Uh, and, for example, when Lula was in prison, uh, a lot of members of the SPD, they went uh, to Brazil for a visit. Uh, so, of course, Lula is there in Germany, not, not just because he's friendly with all of shows, but they want to talk business as well, because the exports are from Germany to Brazil, they they have risen only 3% in the last 10 years. If you look at the US, where it, have, it has risen 38%, or China, 87%, this number is quite low. So I think they want to do more kind of a, a financial cooperation here. Uh, and another curiosity here is that all of shows and I believe Lula, they wanted that agreement between the EU and the Mercosur to go ahead. But it's not going ahead, in my view, actually. Macron doesn't want... It, it, it's such a difficult uh, process. There's so many little details, and I don't think both regions are going to agree on that one. So that's interesting. They're friendly, but I don't think that main agreement will happen. Uh, in arguably happier news, then, uh, Brazil is anticipating quite the stampede of tourists this summer. The best season in 13 years, according to, you know, according to, to the government there. So potentially could be could beat the 2013-2014 season and reasons for it. The inflation is more or less under control. The, the jobs, there have been some creation of jobs more recently. And of course, we're coming from the post-COVID uh, era, which in Brazil has affected mm. immensely. And that, of course, affected our tourism industry. So the numbers is 155 billion uh, reais, which is a huge number. Uh, I think even in traditional cities like Rio and Salvador, the, ho the hotel's occupancy, they're almost reaching 100%, uh, especially around the New Year season carnival, of course, which this year is happening a bit early. So yeah, good news. I think the country needed that. Because one thing I'll tell you, Andrew, Brazil is a big country, but especially when it comes to international tourism, we're not that great, actually, when you look at the numbers. Sometimes very small countries have more tourists uh, than Brazil. So I think we should, we have so much potential uh, to grow when it comes to tourism as well. Uh, well, while you're sitting <laughs> here then, if anybody is thinking maybe I should join that rush to Brazil, but is concerned that there may no longer be any hotels to be had in Salvador or Rio de Janeiro. Where would you recommend people go? I mean, you're going to say Sao Paulo, obviously. <laughs> well. um, but give us one recommendation for Sao Paulo, first of all, because I don't think it's a city that immediately occurs to people, especially if they're going to Brazil for the first time. People think of it as a huge city, which it is, and it's inland. Um, so what's good about it? Why should people go? You know why they should go there over the summer? Of course, we don't have the beach. Uh, but, you know, especially if you go around this kind of New Year season, Sao Paulo is actually quite quiet. It's the only <laughs> time of the year where there's no traffic in the streets. People are very friendly. A lot of people from Sao Paulo are traveling, but we still have the great restaurants, great night scene. So yeah, it's a great time to go, actually. Or just go to Bahia. I mean, they have an amazing coast. I might be there. You might you might see me there, actually. Uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you. As always, you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio.
You are listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. And next June, elections for the European Parliament will take place across the EU, which, as usual, are likely to prompt greater angst among participants in and observers of European politics than they do among European voters, roughly half of whom couldn't be bothered last time. By way of personifying the concerns at large in some circles, yesterday a gathering of Europe's hard right gathered in Florence to launch the campaign of the Identity and Democracy Group, an alliance embracing the likes of Germany's AFD, Italy's Lega, France's National Rally, and the recently triumphant Dutch PVV. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Philippe Malier, a professor of French and European politics at University College London. Um, Philippe, first of all, one assumes that this was a reasonably energised uh, gathering given the PVV's result in the most recent Dutch elections. What lessons will the hard right across Europe be drawing from Geert Wilders' success? Hello, Andrew. Uh, Yes, of course, the the far right is going from strength to strength across Europe. And I I think it was a very good time for them to meet. As you said in your introduction, it was aimed at uh, getting the MEPs of the Identity and Democracy group in the European Parliament into some kind of battle order ahead of the the European elections in June. So, in fact, you had a gathering of far right parties. You you, you mentioned uh, some of them, the main ones. But a point to make is that not the whole of the far right is, is gathered into that ID group. The, for instance, the Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, the party of the incumbent prime minister, Giorgia Meloni, who is an ally of um, Matteo Salvini, the, the host of that meeting in Florence, is in another uh, EP group uh, called the European Conservatives and Reformist Group. So, uh, together with all the forces such as Spanish Vox or the Polish Law and Justice Party. So, it's uh, it's the far right is clearly on the rise across Europe, but surprisingly, it remains uh, split into different groups. So, imagine if they, they, they were to converge, they probably would be even uh, stronger. I mean, what kind of principles do actually unite these groups, or at least the ones that are are united with each other? Well, I was uh, listening to some of the speeches uh, via sort of the internet, all the, the the clips I could I could listen to, and I think what was striking is that you know you had a, a sort of range of parties, notably uh, smaller parties uh, from uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and I think their rhetoric is is very much radical, very much on the far right. And I was thinking, for instance, of the, the French Rassemblement National who've been attempting for the past 20 years or so of, of de-demonizing themselves, you know, coming across, looking uh, less radical, less far right, not of a, not a, not of a threat to, to, to democracy or uh, for the public. And I think, for instance, there was a Bulgarian nationalist party called Renaissance and he, he, its leader, Kostadin, Kosta, Konstantinov, who is openly anti-LGBT rights, anti-ROMs, pro-Putin, and who made a reference to the white supremacist idea of great replacement, you know, this idea that due to mass immigration coming essentially from Africa, Asia, or or, uh, the Maghreb, uh, are uh, white, predominantly Christian uh, populations are being replaced by by those migrants. So this is not mainstream uh, stuff. This is really very much on the far right. So I think you had that. And I, I, it shows again that 
you know, when those parties get together, they're, they're not on the mainstream, even if the, 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 the parties that we know in Italy, in France, in Germany would like uh, the, the public, the electorate to think that they are now uh, much more conventional parties. But are they on the verge of becoming the mainstream, whether the mainstream likes it or not? I mean, this is the ambition of Matteo Salvini. He wants um, ID to become the third biggest grouping in the European Parliament. They currently hold 62 out of 705 seats, which is obviously not a plurality, but it's not nothing at all. If Salvini gets what he wants and this does become the third largest grouping in the EU Parliament, what kind of difference would they be able to make to, um, you know, politics? Policy and governance. I think it will it would sort of bring about uh, significant changes because so far, or until a few years ago, the the sort of the, the strategy of the far right was to propose, you know, a, a policy of exit of the EU, a kind of you know an exit for the Netherlands, Frexit for France, and I think they've completely changed tack now. They want to remain firmly in the EU, but they want to conquer it. They want now to become a major force in the in the EU to sort of redirect policy and in a, in a different way, you know, uh, f- away from a federal Europe, notably. They are very much against that and a Europe of, of nations. And essentially, yes, they will. They are expected to make uh, significant gains at the expense of conservatives and, and socialists in the uh, European Parliament. And they are. And when they'll be more uh, more powerful, of course, they'll be in a position probably to block legislation or even to pass some somehow legislation. And I think we know that policies essentially they rely on, on two two pillars. First one is what you call, can call that nativism. You know that it's the policy of protecting the interests of native-born citizens, with an attack on Islam, lots of Islamophobia and migrants. And the other leg is that what I would call welfare chauvinism, which which is welfare, social rights, and provisions ought to be reserved and allocated to to nationals only. So I think that's why they're going to push forward very strongly if they've got a a bigger representation in the European Parliament. Uh, just finally then, because it is it is the way of relatively extreme factions on, on both edges of the political spectrum. They do have a enormous talent for falling out with each other over often quite minor differences of doctrine. Um, Geert Wilders wasn't at the launch in Florence. In fairness to him, he is probably busy back home in the Netherlands trying to figure out if he can form a government. But Marine Le Pen didn't turn up either. Is it possible that some of these parties are actually kind of worried about the domestic political dangers of being seen to associate with each other? Absolutely. I was referring to this uh, French notion of de-demonization, you know, where I think that's even uh, openly talked about in, in, in France. You know, Le Pen is really attempting to be seen as, a, a more, as more mainstream. You know, if she wants to win in 2027, she, she, she can't be seen as a sort of typical far-right leader. The trouble with, for her and, and also with the builders in the Netherlands is that whenever she goes to Europe and meet where their, their counterparts. You, you have smaller parties which are in a position with no, no chance in a, in a foreseeable future to, to make it to government. And, and therefore, those parties are remain really on the, on the fringe and far right. So it's a bit of an embarrassment. 
you said that Le Pen wasn't there. It's true. Wilders wasn't there either. But she sent uh, the party leader, Le Pen, uh, Jordan Bardella, the sort of rising star of the Rassemblement National, was there. So it was noted in, in the French context. And of course, the media, the French media were quick at sort of uh, uh, flagging up the, 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 the contradiction about who are you in the end? Are you a mainstream party or are you still the, the old far right? Philippe Malia, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. It has been a recurring theme of recent years. Former colonies of various European powers knocking on the doors of museums and asking for their stuff back. Last July, the Museum Volkenkunde in the Dutch city of Leiden returned 478 artefacts purloined from Sri Lanka and Indonesia. This week, some of those went on display at Indonesia's National Museum in Jakarta. And I'm joined now by someone who has been to see them, Saskia. Kia Southeast Asia correspondent for the Dutch newspaper NRC, based in Jakarta, formerly a museum curator in the Netherlands. Um, Saskia, first of all, before we talk about how this stuff actually got there, um, what kind of things are actually on show? What are some of the highlights of the exhibition? Yeah, it's about 150 items and four collections uh, stand out. One is some objects that were in possession of the freedom fighter Dipo Negoro. He was uh, fighting Dutch colonial rule 1825 to 1830 and then he was um, uh, defeated. Uh, So what you can see is his dagger, uh, saddle and some of his personal items. The second is Uh, temple sculptures from the 13th century that were taken from the Singosari temple in East Java by a governor in the 19th century, Nikolaus Engelhardt, who thought it was beautiful and put it in his own garden in Semarang. And and then he had them shipped to the Netherlands. So those are back. Uh, Third, there is the Lombok treasure, um, the Lombok uh, kingdom has been uh, attacked by the Dutch end of 19th century. Um, it was a very, very brutal attack. And this is a loot of gold items and personal item of the royal family. And fourth is the Klungkung t- uh, treasury, Klungkung kingdom that was attacked by the Dutch in 1908. And in defense, they, this is a very tragic story. They um, defied, tried to defy the Dutch and were resisting by mass suicide. So 200 followers and the king and the royal family killed themselves. After that, the Dutch entered the royal palace and took all kinds of items. All these items are now on display in Jakarta. So when you go to see them now, how are they framed in the museum? How do they tell the story of why these artefacts ended up in the Netherlands and and how they came to come back? Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, One sign talks about, especially, um, yeah, with the royal items and the Dipunogoro items, they call it tools of resistance, tools of human strength. Um, And they also emphasise it has magical spiritual power, especially, for instance, the dagger, which is a karis. We, uh, it's, it's also see it was a ritual item that's not, he didn't fight with that one. Uh, but uh, so it's also 
it uh, embodies some of the spirits of the prince itself. And there's also some amulets. So um, the items are presented as tools of resistance, special items, and of course, of uh, the national heritage. I mean, as we saw in the United Kingdom last week with another huge row between London and Athens over the Elgonor Parthenon marbles, um, these issues can become extremely emotive, often very much so for the country which has been holding on to the artefacts. Was this restitution controversial in in the Netherlands? Were there people arguing that, no, they're here and they should stay in Leiden? Um, Yes, these voices are there, but... um Mostly, especially in the museum world, um, this has been a long process. This process started even after independence, where the Indonesian uh, government asked back a few items. And in the 70s, first items of Dipanogoro, for instance, were returned. Um, Some items were returned in the 80s, and especially after Macron was uh, advocating a uh, more smooth uh, repatriation policy in 2018. The Dutch and the Indonesian government sat together, both nations formed committees and have been talking about the colonial collections. Um, so in the Dutch, especially museum curators who kind of are entering this, have entered this post-colonial dialogue, are trying to revision history you know of course it was a revision a history of oppression of colonial uh, might and um, and of course now we also especially indonesians want to tell the story of uh, independence struggle and of um, freedom fighting so and then yeah the two nations talk to each other and in, 19- in 2020 the dutch um had an official committee saying that the official stance is involuntary items taken involuntary should be returned and all items that are of great importance to the Indonesian people should be returned as well. And this is kind of, uh, most people feel like that's the way to go. Uh, Saskia, I understand you have been talking uh, to the people involved in the museum. Tell us a bit about what they had to say. Yeah, this weekend I was talking to Bonnie Triana. He is the curator of the exhibition and part of the repatriation committee. And I asked him, the return of the collection, the repatriation, does it make up for the past? The moral lesson from this repatriation is that we have a dark side in, in, in history, right? Every country in the world during colonial time has a Backside. So, so we don't want to erase the history of colonialism by returning all the objects, you know, as evidence of colonialism from the West. In this respect, from the Netherlands. But you know, understanding the past by returning this object can be more productive. Uh, and Saskia, they they also had some thoughts on, I guess, the wider contemporary meaning of these artifacts. Absolutely. I also asked him about the meaning of the repatriation for the people. What does it mean for today's Indonesia? Yeah, it does uh, mean very important for the Indonesian people because at least they can see their own history, their own uh, piece of history, right? Because 
It has been in the Netherlands for many, many years. What we heard always the story about this object. Oh, there are so many historical objects has been taken from Indonesia to the Netherlands and then they are all stored in many museums in the Netherlands. Meanwhile, the Dutch can easily visit the museum and see our collection there. Meanwhile, Indonesia only heard about the story. So now they can see directly what they have in the past. And then they can also know that way, way before the colonialism, Dutch colonialism were coming to, our, to this island. This is not an empty land. There was a civilization. Saskia Koniger in Jakarta, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. This is The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller, and it is roughly that time in December at which several lexicographical, who would put that word in a script, concerns sonorously announce what has been, in their view, the word of the year. Last year, the Oxford English Dictionary occasioned an amount of controversy by anointing a phrase goblin mode rather than a word and a phrase at that which prompted expressions of bewilderment from everybody over the age of 15. This year the OED boffins have again chosen a youthful neologism though have returned to a more literal interpretation of word of the year. And joining me to introduce it is Fiona McPherson Senior Editor at the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, Fiona, first of all, the big question, and I don't have a drum roll sound effect queued up so we'll just have to imagine what actually is the OED's word of the year? Uh, the word of the year is Riz, R-I-Z-Z. Righto. And broadly speaking, what does Riz mean? It means style, charm or attractiveness. So the ability to attract a romantic or sexual partner. And, and how would you use it in a sentence? Um, you might ask someone if they had res. You might describe someone. I mean, it would be interesting if they replied in the negative. Or you might ask if someone has res or say, I think so-and-so has res. Do we understand the etymology? I'm taking a wild guess that somebody somewhere has plucked the middle syllable out of charisma. Uh that's very incisive of you. It's exactly what's <laughs> happened. It's not. It's not a shape. It's not a straightforward shortening of charisma because that would be chariz. Um, uh, they've taken it from the middle, which is actually quite relatively unusual in English. We don't do it that often, but examples would be fridge from refrigerator, say, or flu from influenza. Uh, normally, we'll maybe just lock the end off a word, but that, yeah, that's exactly where we think it's come from, etymologically speaking. Uh, and, well, geographically speaking or, or demographically or culturally speaking, do we understand where it first gestated and maybe roughly when? It's... I think it's fair to say it's very much a, a word for the younger generation, um, probably especially teenagers. And it's mostly, I think, a feature of Internet culture. Uh, but it has broken out a little bit from that. So that's probably where it was first um, thought up, coined, you know, use whichever word you want there. Um, and I think... This year, we've seen a bit of an increase in it because the actor Tom Holland was asked in an interview if he had Riz 
And he said, I have no res whatsoever. I have limited res. And that was quite widely reported. So that brought it from, you know, maybe a little bit outside those uh, TikTok, Twitch, other communities are available, but outside of those and more into the mainstream. I mean, as a general rule, though, I think it's quite common for neologisms to bubble up into the mainstream uh, from more youthful generations. Is the OED ever concerned that by the time you notice it and anoint it uh, and declare it word of the year, that it's a word that the actual youth stopped using about three years ago? That is, <laughs> there's always that danger, but that's the way language works and also really the way dictionaries work because we don't include a word unless it's entered into some kind of general uh, currency. Now, that might be the complete general public. It might also be the part of the public that you'd expect to be using a word. So technical vocabulary, for example, that's not going to form part of everybody's mainstream day-to-day -day, uh, vocabulary, but you would expect it amongst people who did a particular job or, you know, were worked in a particular area. So, yes, it has to be, it has to have taken hold before we'll put it into um, a dictionary. So there is always going to be that time lag. But that's, that's the way that language works. You know, society changes in some way, develops in some way, and then language will catch up with that or at least dic you know dictionaries will catch up with that at some point and, and just finally was the oed chastened bewildered emboldened whatever really by the controversy around goblin mode last year well it's funny because uh, I, i'd forgotten about the controversy because <laughs> when we say words of course what we mean is words uh, compound or phrase it's a it's a, a single unit of meaning but single unit of meaning of the year doesn't really <laughs> cut it. So I don't think we were. I think we were just reminded that maybe we use some language in a slightly different way from uh, everyone else. Fiona McPherson at the OED, thank you for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Christy O'Grady. Our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing returns tomorrow at the same time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.